Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. I think many of the greatest lights shining in our midst are doing their good work without fanfare or significant recognition. And it's my great hope that I find such workers for world healing and help them get the word out. Not because they need the acclaim for their egos, but because I hope that will inspire you to support and maybe join in the work. Today's Spirit in Action guest is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where she is a clinical psychologist for the state's largest free medical clinic, providing services to principally undocumented immigrants. In 2019, Leslie Davis expanded her compassionate outreach by making three extended sojourns on the U.S.-Mexican border, starting with the Dilly Detention Center in Texas and attempting to provide much-needed service from both her general energy and compassion and from her skills as a psychologist. Her passion for the work will become obvious to you as Leslie Davis joins us by phone from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Leslie, I'm really, really, really happy to have you here today for Spirit in Action. Mark, thank you for inviting me to be here. I wish I were sitting with you in person, but I'll take this phone connection for now. We'll have to look forward to those opportunities to be together. I've normally seen you at Northern Yearly Meeting, the regional Quaker gathering that we've both have gone to, but it's been so many years that I really feel like when I found out about the work that you're doing with immigrants and with people on the border who are suffering trauma, it really felt important to me to connect with you about that work and to connect with you with being the dear person you are. The way that I first really got to know you was working with middle school kids at this Northern Yearly Meeting Gathering. Is the focus of your work as a psychologist and doing psychotherapy type work, is that typically with youngsters or is it with the full range of ages? It is with the full range of ages, but I was originally trained to work with children, but I right now work in a free medical clinic for folks with no insurance and they're immigrants. So children who are born here in the United States tend to have insurance, so they would tend not to come to our clinic. I tend to see more adults at this point at this particular job and some teens and young adults that were not born here and hence have no insurance. And I guess where we're sitting, probably 90 to 95% of our patients are undocumented Spanish and mostly Spanish speakers. And you're fairly unusual in that for a native Midwesterner of European descent. Actually, I don't know if you were a Midwesterner originally. You're fluent in Spanish. That is pretty unusual, isn't it? Is it easy to find people like that in your clinic? More and more. I do meet people that maybe started studying it in high school or college and they have a gift. I don't have a gift. I was exposed to Spanish from the age of two on. We lived in South America when I was young. I actually am a Midwesterner, Mark. I was born in Indiana, born and raised in Indiana, except for some of our years down in South America. So I'm very uncomfortable with my Spanish, but not because I have any gift, just because I've used it my whole life. Could you say a little bit more about how great your fluency is? Is all your family fluent in Spanish as well? Siblings, your parents, your children? 
actually probably I'm the most fluent of the three sisters at this point because I kept using it and I really put an effort into studying it further as an adult. So I use it and I use it every day, eight to 10 hours a day at my jobs. Does everybody speak Spanish there? They do. That's pretty much a requirement. We have some volunteer physicians at our clinic that are not Spanish fluent and we're so thrilled to get their service that we, you know, we'll provide interpreters, but pretty much our full-time staff, except management, are Spanish speakers. Well, the reason I decided to reach out to you, and folks, we are speaking with Leslie Davis, based in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was because I saw an item in the weekly announcements for Milwaukee Friends Meeting, the Quaker meeting down there, that said that you were headed off to the Dilly Detention Center last March, it was, and that you were going to be working with people in the family detention center there to help people with trauma. Ever since then, I've been tracing your work. It's been hard to get a hold of you, Leslie, because I think so frequently you've been immersed in this work and going down to help people on the border. So could you give me a little bit of a background to the work that you're doing, how you got into it, and how it's absorbed your life, I think? Yes. So like I said, I've been at this a medical clinic for 14 years, serving pretty much exclusively Spanish speakers, and, and we restricted me to that and undocumented immigrants. Some years ago, maybe eight or 10 years ago, there was a patient that said to me, I have an attorney and we have a case and we're wondering if you could write a letter about the abuse I suffered or the trauma and we're using it for a case. And I said, oh, okay, sure, I can write a summary. So that was sort of the beginning of my work with immigration attorneys to support cases. And it just kept expanding. So that early case I came to understand was a VAWA case, which is, stands for Violence Against Women Act. So it was a patient married to a U.S. citizen and was abused by him. So that put her in a position to actually, under the Violence Against Women Act, file for legalization. So if you're victimized by a U.S. citizen spouse, you might be eligible. So that was just the beginning of my working. There are It also now extends to U visa cases where someone who is victimized here on U.S. soil, maybe not by a citizen spouse, but maybe shot at or some qualifying crime, they might be eligible for legalization. So it's a whole process with immigration. So I did more and more of those cases. I learned about this kind of thing and then started working with immigration attorneys supporting different kinds of cases. And then maybe five years ago, had my first asylum case. And that was a new one on me. And that was somebody from Central America who had fled, was here, had made it up to the U.S. and made it to Milwaukee and was now filing for asylum to say they felt unsafe to return to their country and asking to be here lawfully. Since then, I'm just doing more and more work with immigration attorneys on these cases. Actually, the newer case I'm learning about are trafficking cases. You know, we're a big hot nationwide here in Milwaukee for labor and sex trafficking. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't, but I am appalled to hear that. I did live in Milwaukee for eight and a half years, and I found it to be a pretty nice community for the most part. 
but there's racism and other attributes that are manifest in Milwaukee that make me very sad. Yeah. Well, this is another one, and it's horrific. It includes child trafficking. So that's another topic. But some federal funding has come into our city, and there's some good folks trying to address these issues. But I, again, stumble in as the psychologist being asked to do an evaluation and prepare a report sort of testifying that someone, what they live through and that they're traumatized. But my point is I'm just in the course of serving this community, I've gotten more involved with immigration situations and some of my new social life as immigration attorneys, and that's what I might want to be in my next life. But I started hearing about some of them going down to the border, and I started looking into that, I want to say in 2018, to see if I could go volunteer. Finally, it fell into place in 2019 in March, and the first experience was going to Dilly, Texas, which is not far from San Antonio and Laredo. Uh, I went to the Dilly Family Detention Center, and I spent a week with their pro bono legal project. And I can describe Dilly. It's, um, it sounds so gentle, doesn't it? Family Detention Center. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it, it's, a, it's not that gentle. It's a prison. But it's one of the three family detention centers in the country that are exclusively for women and children that have crossed the border. What happened then was, you know, I was working with families as they were had arrived, and it was hard. It got me to want to actually go over to the other side and work with families before they even crossed over. And so then my next three experiences in 2019 were actually going with another border rights project into Tijuana, Mexico. And there's a lot of incredible immigration attorney, I call them badasses, that are over on the other side doing work and at these detention centers. So that was where I got busy last year, and I kind of couldn't stop. Now I'm regrouping, trying to figure out what 2020 will be about. I'm imagining that this is all a lot easier because all your kids are grown. Could you have imagined doing this work when you had children at home? No, I can't have imagined. And I I know that they've sure been supportive of what I'm doing. But yeah, I'm footloose and fancy free now. And my job is great that I can take some breaks and go down there. And actually, I've ended up sharing with patients that I've gone to the detention center and gone over the other side into Mexico. And they seem grateful to me for that. It's been sweet sharing that. So your work is as a psychologist. So you're interfacing with, working with lawyers. I just listened to an episode of This American Life talking about experiences on the border and how the laws have changed. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that feeds right into the trauma that you end up dealing with, Leslie. Right. And of course, I'll include a link to that episode of This American Life via the NordenSpiritRadio.org website. So if you folks want to listen to that, you can understand this part of the background that both Leslie and I are bringing to this conversation. So to try to give you a sense of what my experiences were, I went as a psychologist, but they weren't sure that they would need my services as a psychologist. So I, what I did was I joined volunteer that week. It was funny. It was three different law schools that were on spring break. So I was the oldest person there. I think there was one dean that came with them. So I ended up also doing intakes for people to hear what their situation was. 
And then I did end up being asked in two cases to do some psyche valves. So I only really used my psychology in two cases where people had gotten denied at their credible fear interview. So I did psyche valves. And then when I went down to Tijuana the first time with another border rights project and attorneys, I didn't go necessarily as a psychologist because of my Spanish fluency and I got trained in how to do intakes and prepare people for interviews. So I was a general volunteer. And then later I've gotten pulled in as a psychologist to work on a few cases for asylum. So in between you and just a general volunteer, there's also people, I suppose, doing some kind of psychotherapy and that kind of trauma support. So even when you're not a psychologist, are you still working with trauma support? I mean, I'm, we're listening to stories of folks who have been through nightmares and persecution and trauma. So they said that they like having psychologists come and do intakes because we're good listeners and, and we are hearing their horror stories. So at the Dilly Detention Center, there was nobody getting therapy. They were getting prepped for their credible fear interviews. And then down at Al Otro Lado, when they're helping asylum seekers, again, they can't be offering therapy. They're trying to do intake. So now I did work then as a therapist with a different agency down in Tijuana. And then I joined a, a health clinic and then was working as a therapist. So I did eventually do that. But I started these experiences more as a, a general volunteer and sort of arm of the legal. So you've been interested in this work with immigrants in Milwaukee, where you're located, or on the border. This has all ramped up very significantly in the last three years. It's certainly been there before that the issue is not brand new, but there's something that changed in the last three years that has made your role all the more vital there. Could you talk about what the changes you've heard about, seen, witnessed on the border? Generally, with this administration, it's been a nightmare for the immigrant community. I mean, that's always been here, fears and racism. And so it's been a rough few years here in Milwaukee and all over the state. I mean, people have been coming to the border and crossing for a long time, right? We've had the asylum process forever, but it has changed a lot under this administration. Here's the way it's worked. When we've had this asylum law in place, gosh, I don't know, since when, World War II or something, where people should be allowed to come, that they feel unsafe in their countries and request entry into our country, right? The way that that's been happening on the southern border, and refugees are different, right? In other countries, they're vetted and they're in refugee camps and getting vetted by our government and waiting for years and coming, but there's no such process for so many countries. So folks usually would either go into a port of entry along the border, turn themselves into Border Patrol and say, I'm from Mexico, I'm from Guatemala, I feel unsafe, I'm being persecuted in my country, I want to request admittance to your country. So then Border Patrol would need days to process them, so they would put them in these horrific conditions and process them, and then there would be an asylum officer doing a credible fear interview. I think until recently, you know, they weren't too strict about it. It's like, okay, we better err on the side of admitting more people. They may not win their case later, but there's enough here that we'll, we'll go ahead and let them in, and then they can go in front of an immigration judge in a couple of years and present their situation. 
but for now they'll be safe. So that was one way, people going in through port of entry. And then there have been other people who, you know, cross the border and may get picked up. Same process. They say, I'm afraid to go back. They get into border patrol and get processed. And then sometimes they would get released to their sponsor with an ankle monitor. And then oftentimes they would get sent to a detention center. So that's where I went was to a detention center, one of three in the nation that are for women and children. So then once they get released and women and children, there was an act, the Flores Act, where they're not supposed to be in too long, then they get released to their sponsor. And like I said, they've had their court hearing. So what started happening was maybe in 2018, was this when Trump said there's a crisis, too many people are trying to get in, we need to meter this. We've got to do a metering system. We can't let everybody in. We're just we're going to determine how many people can get admitted at any given day. So that this is what started happening at the border with these illegal lists. So the administration said, you know what? And we don't have time to do the metering. We'll let the Mexican immigration handle this. Each day we'll let them know how many people can come in to border patrol and plead their cases. So that's Grupo Beta, that's the immigration in Mexico. And so then they said, you know, we actually can't handle this either. We're going to let the asylum seekers manage their own list. So this is what is happening. They're called illegal lists. This is not a legal process. What's happening is people are not getting to step foot onto U.S. soil to even request asylum and say they're unsafe, Right. They're having to wait in these border towns. So Tijuana is a big one. And then there are other ones, Nuevo Laredo, Matamoros, different places where people are, they're managed, they have these lists. So let's say you've got new, uh, new Guatemalans that are arriving into Mexico. They've made the long journey. They've gotten to the border. And then they realize they can't step foot onto U.S. soil. They've got to get onto this list. They show up in the morning, and this is the kind of thing that I witnessed, that they show up in the morning with their documentation proving that they're children of their children with birth certificates and whatnot, and get ushered back by these list managers who are themselves asylum seekers. They review their documents, literally write their names into a spiral notebook and assign them a number. And they rip the little paper, 3,470, you know, here's your little number, stay tuned probably going to be several months. So they've made this whole trek up here. They're not even allowed to step onto U.S. soil to request asylum, and they've got to wait in these dangerous towns. Matamoros is one of them right now that is just its considered one of the most dangerous cities in the world. It's like level four dangerous, and this is where you're seeing people in tents and camped out right outside the border, you know, waiting for their number to get called. In Tijuana, it's about a three- or four-month wait right now. There's some groups down there that publish El Numero de la Lista, so you can they can try to stay tuned when their number's getting close. So this is what's been happening over the – this is one of the big changes is this metering. So then their number gets called. So then the process is they get ushered over and they get into the hands of Border Patrol, who then puts them into Yelera. It means icebox, okay, 40 degrees. Most of their belongings are taken from them. They get, and these are the pictures that you may have seen in the news of people with these aluminum blankets and on concrete floors. 
and they're waiting for days. It's supposed to be a two- or three-day tops, but sometimes it's nine days in these yaleras. The children get sick. This is where they're not fed properly and the hygiene. They don't get to shower, and it's terrific. So then they finally, they're waiting to get their credible fear interview, which they've got to say, I'm afraid to go back. I'm afraid I'm going to get persecuted. So now then the new change is the Remain in Mexico or the Migrant Protection Protocol. That's been another change this year that's been horrific where the asylum officer said, oh, okay, well, you'll go in front of a judge maybe in three months, but you're going to go wait back in Mexico. You're not going to wait here. So they don't, I'm not putting them in the detention centers often. They're sending them back to Mexico to wait. So they waited three or four months after their long journey. Sometimes people are journeying for eight months or two years. They finally make it to the border. They've got to wait three or four months to even get to step onto soil to say, I'm in danger. Then they get sent back. So that's the, the other change that has been just a nightmare. I'm going to have you say more about that, Leslie Davis. But first, I want to remind listeners that you are tuned in to Spirit in Action. Our website is northernspiritradio.org, and on that site you'll find links to all of our guests of the past 14 and a half years. You'll find a place to include comments on this program, rate the programs, and there's a donate button in case you want to support Northern Spirit Radio. Even more so, I'd actually ask that you support your local community radio station and the alternative media in your area. At this point, some 90% of our media are owned just by six corporations, so there's a very narrow spigot controlling the amount of news that you get. So it's so important that we have people like Leslie Davis here to speak about her experiences on the border with Mexico and dealing with refugee situation there. So I'm going to head right back to you, Leslie, to say some more about how things have changed and what the situation is with people showing up on the border. I do have questions about everything that you said, because it strikes me that there's some really significant details that if people understand them, they'll understand better why this system is completely unjust. And it's for the profit and the well-being being of a very limited slice of people. At least that's how I perceive it. But please go ahead, Leslie. It's just important. I think, you know, there's a lot of news and MPP and remain in Mexico and detention centers and pictures of cages. And so I know that I'm realizing a lot of people, it's complicated. So it's hard to understand all the different aspects of what's happening. But there are probably, I think they're saying they're like 50,000 people that are on this Remain in Mexico program that have been sent back to wait. Now, if they're from Mexico, they can't be sent back. So I was this last time seeing more and more people from Mexico fleeing terrible, dangerous situations, and they were getting crossed and then put into detention centers. So that it just pertains to people not from Mexico. Now, the other change this year, too, is that you've got to first apply for asylum in a third country and get turned down before you can apply in the United States. I mean, I guess when I was preparing for this show yesterday, I called an immigration attorney friend of mine and I said, you know, what changes are there? And because it's been dizzying. It's literally for people on the ground, the changes have been constant. So from one time to the next, there are more changes. They're trying to do everything, clog up the system. So under the MPP Remain in Mexico program, 
there literally have been 11 approvals. That's 0.1%. I mean, they're just making people jump through hoops. I think there's some detail here that will really bring home for people how oppressive the current system is. It used to be that if there seemed to be a likelihood of danger, you let them in. And now the criteria for asylum to even get into the country is extremely heightened. Could you review a little bit of what that criteria is like now? Right. It's difficult to pass the credible fear interview and then very difficult to win your case later to be granted asylum. So the idea of the criteria is that you've suffered persecution in your home country in the form of physical harm, threats, sexual abuse, and that you fear continued persecution. And you cannot safely relocate within your country, that you tried to report it to the police, and the police and the government are unable to protect. And the persecution has to have happened on one of five bases. Either you were persecuted on the basis of your race, the basis of your religion, your nationality, your political opinion or affiliation, that's four. And then there's this fifth category called particular social group or PSG. So that used to be where a lot of cases could fit in. For example, being a woman, that could be a basis that you're being persecuted, for example, in Honduras for belonging to the gender female, because that's been a very high femicide country. So that PSG has gotten much tighter. That used to be where a lot more cases could fit through. I think uh, trans folks, that is still considered a dangerous particular social group to be a part of. So those cases are tending to do a little better, but being a female now is not working so well. But when I was in Dilly was the first time that I really started understanding the criteria, and it was painful to see people who'd made this huge trek and then went through border patrol and finally got put into detention. They're hoping to get released, and then they're hearing that their case doesn't look very good. Either they pass their credible fear interview, but things don't look so good for their case when they go in front of a judge in a year or two, or they failed their credible fear interview and they're going to get deported. But, you know, we literally have someone who had been beaten and threatened by a gang or narco trafficker and they were fleeing, but there would be situations where that wasn't going to count, if you can believe it. And they'd look at us like, what? You know, so because that didn't fall under one of the criteria. So then it was interesting working with these very focused, bright law students saying they would keep digging and saying, if, for example, we found out that one of their family members had gotten threatened, that might be a basis because then they were part of a particular social group as in their specific family. Being a member of that family put them at risk. There were certain cases that are just very slam dunk. I mean, I met a Nicaraguan there who had been persecuted based on her religion. I think she was Christian in a Catholic area or vice versa. And she was in a political party that didn't fit with her surrounding area. So, I mean, that sort of situation is slam dunk. The trans cases. Recently, I've done reviews for Venezuela and Cuba, and and those are more clearly because of their political affiliation. And right now, our government is going to also look favorably on certain folks that are fleeing those two countries. But otherwise, it's tough, and especially because Trump limited the gang violence as a criteria. 
and the thing is, it's real. I mean, what they're living in these areas, the danger, the death threats, the extortion, you know, take a country like El Salvador, if they get pressured to join a gang, and that's where a lot of people are fleeing with their young kids who are getting pressured to join the narco-trafficker gang, and they say no, then they'll get killed. But if they try to relocate in their country, they can't because the whole country is literally divided into two territories. So you can't flee to another territory of the same gang because you've shamed them and they'll be on the lookout for you and you're not safe to relocate in the opposing gang territory. So people are fleeing real dangerous situations, but, you know, a lot of times it's not going to be so easy to fit into our very strict asylum criteria. You know, and then there are situations where, well, they didn't report to the police. Well, you know, the police are part of the whole corrupt system with the narco-traffickers, for example, or the police are the ones prosecuting. So that is another way that it makes it rough. Trying to prove why they can't relocate within the same country, that's another stumbling block. They'll say, well, hey, you're in danger in, you know, Michoacan in Mexico. Well, go live in Cancun. Well, you know, that's not so easy, right? Like, there's not work, and a lot of Mexico's dangerous, and they could still be located. But these are all the different ways that make it very difficult to actually meet the criteria. And it's not because they're not in danger. They are in danger, but the criteria is tough. I understand that they've elevated the threshold of proof. So it's not enough to say this gang is after me. I think you have to get pretty specific. This person is particularly attacking me. And I've got proof that this person did this and that. It gets so specific, which almost, you know, when you have a general threat from a gang that you're going to be raped or abducted or killed, it seems above and beyond the level of proof to say, I know the name of the individual who's going to kill me. Yeah, and I met this uh, woman down at a shelter in, um, I think it was my trip in October, and she had been told that she needed more proof. And what happened was she was, she started just obsessively looking on Facebook and news programs, you know, in her area. And then it became like she couldn't stop. And I I don't think she understood that that wasn't going to actually be enough to just prove the general violence in her area. But poor thing. It got caught up in a loop, too, of just watching. And there are horrific torture scenes that people post from these countries, too. You can't believe they're actually posting this stuff on Facebook. But, but yeah, you're right. And it's got to be proof that they are actually being targeted specifically and on one of those bases. It's crazy and it's horrible. And I'm so thankful that you're doing the work to try and ease the trauma and perhaps bring some help and asylum to people well-deserving of it. So let me go back. So let's say you've got somebody, they waited three months on this illegal list, they crossed over, they went to the ice cage, they got processed, they got sent back to Mexico to wait their first hearing, right, which would be in three or four months. So then they show up on their court date at the border and they get escorted to the San Diego MPP court. At that first hearing, which I went and observed, so I tried to observe all these different aspects, the illegal list, the courts, they show up, they've made this whole trek, and they say, you know, you're here today, here's your application that you'll need to take and fill out and come to your next hearing, and you know that you, how long do you need, and you know you need to have this huge packet for each of your family members and you need to bring it translated into English 
and you know that you are going to do better if you get an attorney, have you tried to get an attorney? And, I mean, I watched this charade this this day in San Diego at these MPP, their first hearings, and not one of them had gotten an attorney. They can't find an attorney when they're, as long as they're waiting in, in Mexico. You know, it gives them no opportunity to get attorneys. And then they're being told they've got to fill out their applications on their own and then have them translated into English. So the whole thing is a mockery. It really is. And then they keep going to hearings and different excuses why they either get denied or they have to come back again and again. And very few people get legal assistance. And if you don't have legal assistance in the asylum system, you're probably not going to get approved. And very few people ever find an attorney. So the other thing that's horrendous besides this whole mockery of the system and all these changes is living in these towns are really dangerous. So they've fled dangerous situations and then they're living in these border towns where there's kidnappings and rape and narco traffickers and, you know, picking people up. I mean, they're very dangerous cities. So some people are not making it to their hearings because something's happened to them. It does sound horrendous. I want to ask some things about the details along the way, because there are some pieces that just make zero sense to me. You talk about these ice cages that people are kept in. This is down right on the Texas-Mexico border that we're talking about, or maybe with California or any of the other states that border with Mexico, where on our side, they're put in places where the temperature's maintained somewhere near 40 degrees. I'm up here in Eau Claire, Wisconsin. You're in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Leslie. Why on the border that far south? I mean, it must actually cost extra money to maintain something at that cold temperature. Why keep people in an ice cage, especially when you've taken away so many of their clothes? You know what the reason is, Mark? And it is for germ control. That's the reason given. No, they're cooling these. They're spending money to air condition these places. And a lot of things don't make sense, and they're not logical, and they're outright cruel. Is this a new thing? Was this being done under the Obama administration or under the Bush administration with these kind of facilities, these ice cages? You know, it's a good question. I think this has been the process for a while. When I was in Dili, it was the first I'd ever heard of it. And as much as I've sat with immigrants and heard their crossing stories, I suppose because I never ask the right questions, but I had, it was the first I'd heard of Yeleras, these ice boxes, and I do think they've been around before number 45 was in office, but it, they also, there are Pereras, which are dog cages. I know when I met people at Dilly, they would say, well, I was in the ice cage for three days, and then they put me in the Perera, the dog cage, and then they put me back in the ice, so I don't, there's another sort of cage situation called the dog cage, uh, and I don't, I'm not, I don't understand, and I wasn't hearing about Pereras recently, so I have so many questions for everything that I learn, I have other questions, and then I can't sometimes stomach getting all the history and the context to these matters. Well, let me ask you another thing. You mentioned, for instance, being in the facility where they have women and children. 
So they have women and children. Does that mean that these are women and children who came without the men, or did they actually just intentionally split up the families? We've heard so much in the news that on the border they're splitting children from parents completely. Yeah. And I think they backtracked on some of that, but I still understand the numbers are many thousands who are still isolated. So why is it women and children? And does that mean that their husbands have been stripped off? Yes, they'll separate, put the men in different facilities if they've traveled together so they don't let the whole family stay together. Now, the children issue, yeah, you're right. They did do that in 2018 and then backtrack. Even Trump said he was, you know, horrified and couldn't see that. But it's still happening. So I'm not sure that I completely understand the different situations. I did see situations where a child might have traveled with an aunt who's not his parent. And so he will get considered an unaccompanied minor and get sent to a youth facility for unaccompanied minors, Chicago or Pennsylvania. So those are some of the situations. They're different. I know I saw a dad one day in the clinic in Tijuana. They had taken his one-month-old baby from him because the baby was sick, and they sent him back over the border. But there were some people trying to get him back over to reunite with his child, but he was bleeding. It was, and if a parent is sick, sometimes they'll say, oh, if a, if a parent is a danger to a child, their DNA has been questioned or the parent is sick and they'll take the child away. I mean, it's still happening. And I'm not sure that I could say they're finding excuses to do these kind of bizarre separations. But I do know some of them are unaccompanied minors that are not with their biological parent or somehow the parent isn't proving that it's their child. And again, folks, we're speaking with Leslie Davis. She is a PhD psychologist. She's been working with undocumented immigrants in Milwaukee and over the past year has vastly expanded that work to help with translation since she is fluent in Spanish down on the Texas, Mexican and Californian borders, places where immigrants are dealing with some of the harshest conditions. And since your specialty, Leslie, is with kids, even though you've worked with all ages over the years, does this mean that you're actually seeing them face-to-face to identify the depths of their trauma? And I mean, the things that you're recounting sound traumatic to me, but of course I've lived mostly a comfortable North American life, except for the two years I was in Africa as a Peace Corps volunteer. Are you actually working on identifying the trauma then, or is this just secondhand stories you're hearing, or how is this knowledge being accumulated? So yes, I was trained with children 30 years ago, and ironically, when I was trained back then, we hardly talked about trauma, which is just incredible that we barely talked about that back then. But yeah, we're sure talking about it, and it's sure rampant down there. The last couple of times that I've gone, I've sat with people and heard their stories and what they were fleeing from their countries, and often their children are sitting there with them. It's hard because I can't present myself as a therapist as I do here. I may not see them again. They may not have an opportunity to see a therapist again. So it's a very different witnessing and affirming incredible resilience that I'm seeing in them too. The first time I went, as I sat with people, 
I came back and I wished that I had kept their phone numbers. There was a gentleman from Cameroon that I sat with for two and a half hours and heard the horrific story of his three-year journey and what had happened in Cameroon and the trauma and then what it took for him to journey up to Tijuana. And I just was haunted by his story and wishing that I could have just stayed in touch with him. And after that, the next two times I went, I've been sharing my phone number with people and just having a self, you know, a WhatsApp connection with folks because I can't, I can't see them again. But just trying to be some kind of a support. So I am aware that I didn't mention that there are as many as 55 different countries have been represented down in Tijuana. It is not just, I mean, it's many Central Americans, but there are folks from all over Cuba, Venezuela, where some newer arrivals in droves, and then also countries from South America, but also Africa and Cameroon. Who knew there's been a horrific genocide of Anglophones for the last few years, and it's been brutal. And there were many Cameroonians that I met, especially in July. And what's happened since, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but it's important for people to understand. There are people from Russia, from Turkey I met, people flying in somehow. I think Ecuador and Brazil have been entry points. And then people making their long journey up from, I think those have been two main ports of entry. I suppose there may have been some people allowed to fly into Mexico City. So now there's been a big bottleneck down at the entry of Mexico at Tapachula. They've been holding people at the border of Guatemala into Mexico and Tapachula for months. And I, I was just messaging a friend of mine that I met who's been witnessing down there and they say to people, okay, if you're going to earn your right to be in Mexico, you've got to go into detention for 21 days. So they've got their own detention centers and then they'll give them a visa to be there in Tapachula for three weeks. And then they're back and forth in and out of detention to earn their right to be in these tent camps. So I know there was a group of 2,000 Africans that were going to take Tapachula by storm and just start walking across Mexico in late October. And the National Guard was waiting for them and turned them off and deported a bunch of them. So this is not in our news right now, and there's some folks down there that are trying to get a handle on that to publicize this. Yeah, I wasn't aware that a lot of people were trying to enter the U.S. via that border from the African countries. And again, I've been to Africa many times in addition to the two years that I lived there. The point being that there's people from all over who are being increasingly hurt, inconvenienced, traumatized, and in fact, sometimes dying because of changes in U.S. policy. When you said much earlier in the interview, Leslie, you said that only 11 people have been accepted into this program for asylum only 11, and that compares to many thousands in previous years. So the faucet has definitely been closed, and there's maybe a few drips getting through. Do you have a very clear sense of these people who are being pushed back into Mexico or being kept at the Guatemalan border, that this is actually resulting in deaths, rapes, all of that? Have you heard that firsthand? Yes, and if I were better with, there are numbers out there. They're trying to guess how many people have died and been raped. I know there was a case, I just did a video evaluation of a woman for a law firm, and I think that 
they're going to help her with her asylum plea, but they also, and she's waiting in Mexico, but I think they picked up the case and wanted me to do an eval because she was raped. She was gang raped upon her arrival into Nuevo Laredo, Mexico, and they're trying to publicize this sort of case to show how dangerous this program is and what they're so vulnerable. So some narco traffickers probably picked her up within an hour of getting to this border town and took her off and gang raped her for 24 hours. So this is not unusual. This is happening. Some other families that I met down there that were in shelters, actually, there was some attempt at labor trafficking them, kidnappings. Someone, they tried to pluck their child, drove by in a truck and tried to pluck the child right out of their arms. I mean, this sort of thing is happening. These are dangerous cities. It's incredible. And the real question that I have about the whole situation, I do understand that, you know, Mexico should carry its fair burden of the process or Guatemala or whatever. But these are really messed up places, very dysfunctional places. And so the question that comes to people like you and me and those people listening to Spirit in Action today is, where is the compassion, the shining light with the Statue of Liberty they're looking for freedom and they come to our border and we say, we don't want to bother with you. Go away. Don't bother us. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you one more time because I, I hear that you've been meeting with all of these people who, who are suffering this vast trauma, who are being unloved and even worse by our country. Instead of taking your vacations, going to fun places, you're going down to the border and putting all your time in there Why are you doing that, Leslie? Is your life that bad in Milwaukee that it's better to go down to these areas? Of course, I'm joking when I say that. But but why are you doing that? I know I get asked that. I And my my Quaker elder friend says, Leslie, just tell people you just have a leading. Because I'm like, what do I... But, you know, I want to tell you, first of all, there's incredible resilience. I mean, in the human spirit, it just is mind-blowing. And then it's what I see with immigrants here, you know, that have lived through so much and then continue to hold hope and build a life and be loving. And so there's that. Um, that's why I keep working with this community here. It's why I keep going down there. And then I also want to say that there are so many amazing folks that are working down there. So our government corporately is not responding well. But I can't tell you the number of beautiful people doing so many great services. So I feel privileged to be among them. I mean, everything from a woman who actually went to Earlham, this cool woman who lives in San Diego, who as things start going wild, she would literally drop her two little children at preschool in San Diego and start filling her van up with groceries and blankets and driving them across the border, sometimes waiting two and a half hours to get through border crossing and delivering them to different shelters. She has been at this tirelessly for a year and a half, has these really cool people that leave stuff on her porch. She just puts it out there. Now we need fans. Now we need police jackets because it's cold. And people are responding to mobile schools that have gotten created and there's been great fundraising to buy plane tickets for people if they do get into detention and get released. People in shelters, these badass immigration attorneys, 
this refugee health clinic that I've been going with started as some San Diego nurses and physicians that as the caravan started coming in, they started rounding up donation medicines and crossing every Saturday and separating out and going into shelters, you know, taking Ubers or whatever and going into shelters and setting up cardboard table and seeing many people on a Saturday. And they've since expanded now so that they've got a full-time clinic. I'm so touched. There are incredible people. There are folks who've been deported for dumb reasons, you know, DACA, whatever, didn't get renewed. And they're down there organizing and doing beautiful service for people. So I'm so I can't, it's just, it's uplifting to see all the beautiful work and heart. You mentioned your Quaker elder giving you some advice about this. I'm wondering, is there any kind of support apparatus for you? Sometimes in Quaker meetings, we have what are called anchoring committees or support committees of some sort. How are you getting your support for your work that you're doing there? She has held a lot of space for me. Kathy, and there's been a small group. And then also I've shared at Adult RE, I've been sent off with lovely messages, and I feel I take my meeting with me. I definitely have felt their support. One thing that I was interested in, Leslie, is when you're working in Tijuana, Tijuana's on the Mexico side of the border, and you're staying evidently in Mexico there in One of the areas I think is considered to be very dangerous. When I was listening to the This American Life interview, some of the people made the point that, no, they come back over the border for the evening because it's too dangerous to stay over there. Aren't you afraid that this is going to be endangering your health and well-being to stay on the other side? Maybe you'll be held for ransom as well. Right. I think that show was Matamoros, and I, I have been in contact with people trying to figure out if I can be helpful down there, but I had thought about not maybe having the courage to stay in Matamoros. It's much more dangerous, I would say, and there's less of an infrastructure. In Tijuana, I stayed in a hotel the first time that was kind of in an area that was considered safer, and I definitely Uber everywhere. I learned that. I don't think I would do a cab but an Uber feels safe because that's tracking. I'm careful to get in at night. The last two times I've actually stayed with friends near the border, so like a couple of blocks, because their work is that they actually show up at the line every morning by 6.30 and give out sandwiches and help orient people who've just gotten there to tell them where the legal rights are, where the medical clinics, they get the kids coloring. So I met them in in July, and then I've stayed with them the last two times that I've gone. And I feel safe, like they keep track of me, and they know where I'm going. If I go out into a shelter in an Uber, I always have somebody know and track where I am. Like I share my location on my phone, so that gives me some security, too. And I, I get in by dark, but I've loved staying with this couple. They actually have a temporary shelter that they provide just for a night or two if they notice that a woman and child, children have shown up at the line with backpacks and they thought their number was about to get called and then it didn't. Then sometimes those women and children have been staying hours away, like in Mexicali or something, so that they'll end up having to sleep on the streets that night while they wait for their number to get called. And so they rented a place right near the border so that they could take women and children in for a night or two while they're waiting for their number to come up. 
So I've been privileged to stay with them and actually go with them every morning to the line and get to know some of the families as they stay at the house. We help them write their sponsor's phone number in black ink on their arms before they go into the ice boxes, warning them to put warm layers on. But anyway, so I'm very aware of trying to be safe. And Matamoros would be different. Tijuana is a little better, I guess, but I'm being smart. Well, folks, today for Spirit in Action, we've been speaking with Leslie Davis. She is a Ph.D. clinical psychologist who also is fluent in Spanish. And because of that, she's not only been helpful in the Milwaukee area where she works with Wisconsin's largest free medical clinic, providing services to largely undocumented immigrants. But for this past year, her passion has been, her leading in Quaker parlance, has been to work with people on the borders, at the detention centers, and the other people who are suffering from trauma and the harsh conditions that are existing now, particularly on our southern border of the United States. This last year, she made three major trips down to the border to help out, and I don't sense, Leslie, that that's going to be decreasing anytime soon, is it? No, nothing shifting that I can tell. There's a number of resources that I'm going to connect you to via my website, come via northernspiritradio.org, the interview with Leslie Davis, and we'll connect you with the refugeehealthalliance.org, alotrolado.org is another site, and there's the Dilly Pro Bono Project, which Leslie's worked with, and many others. You'll find those links on northernspiritradio.org. And if you want to talk to Leslie directly and get information, she'll connect you up and help you as best she can. Her email is, and I'll repeat this twice so you can get it down, it's Les, L-E-S, the first three letters of her first name, L-E-S, period, Davis, D-A-V-I-S, the digit three, less period Davis three at outlook.com. Less period Davis three at outlook.com. She's very happy to help you. And I do have your permission to release that, don't I, Leslie? Yes, you do, Mark. I'm happy to get emails and connect people to resources. And I'm happy to know you, to be able to count you as a friend, and to look forward to seeing you in person one of these days when you're not traveling down to the border to do this work of compassion and support on the border. I am so appreciative of that work and that you joined me here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you, Mark. It was a pleasure. Be well. You can find all of these links, information on northernspiritradio.org. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you all next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song, we will move this world along, and our lives will feel the echo.